by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Let's go to the Lord and we'll pray and then we'll, we'll get into the Word of God. Father, We love you so much. We bow before your holy throne like that song says, Lord. We're so excited to be in your house. We're so glad that we could meet here together tonight without the threat of being run, run off or sent to jail or like they are around the world. Father, we pray for our persecuted brethren. We lift them up before you, Father God, that they would know the freedom to worship you like we do. But Lord, there's nothing that's, that man can do to squelch out the love that we have for you, your, your children. Because when we look at Jesus and we think about everything he did for us, man, it just endures. There's, there's no taking that away. That love never fades, Lord. Sometimes our minds get clouded. Sometimes our schedules get busy. Sometimes we forget and we leak a little bit. But that Holy Spirit still in the midst of our heart. And everything that we need still resides within us because of when that veil was rent, when you said it is finished, man, it was finished for the devil. It sure was. You have bought us the victory. You have given us hope, Father God. And so right now we come against every plan of the enemy. I know everybody sitting in these chairs right now is feeling some kind of, some kind of, uh, Attack of the enemy, whether it's against their finances, their health, against their family members. We all have lost loved ones that we're praying for, and we just see the devil's handiwork, a trail of it in, in people's lives, and we, it just makes us angry, Father God. It ought to make us angry. We are to stand in the gap. We are to be the people that stand on the wall and, and watchmen and not allow these things into our families, Father God. And I pray that you would stir up these people. Stir me up as a pastor. Stir us up. Reinvigorate us about the things of God again. Help us not lose sight that we're in a war. We're in a battle for the souls of mankind right now. People at our, our jobs and maybe in our own households, Lord. We are praying for those wayward ones that are supposed to be here at church tonight that are not those teenagers that have gone astray, that we're believing are coming back. Devil, you get your hands off of our people. We put up a hedge of protection over our people right now, and we send ministering angels forth to protect and guard. We send your spirit. We send your word forth. You said you sent your word to heal us. Heal us, Lord. Heal us. Let that word flow through us. We are yours. And we bow before your holy throne. And I pray in the matchless, mighty, awesome name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good, good. All right, we're still in our Acts Right series. As we go through the book of Acts, we're learning how to Acts Right. <clears throat> Tonight's message is part eight 
counted worthy. Counted worthy. My brother Heath, he's about six years younger than me. I often tell stories. Most of you have heard about him. He likes to tell the story he calls the dirty angel. It's a true story. He was... uh, he moved back to Mississippi while I was in high school for a period of time there. And he went to a little church down there. And he says it was on a Christmas morning. And they were having a church service. Christmas morning. Everybody's dressed up in their Sunday go to meet and duds. And it's a little small church. Everybody knows everybody. And so they're all tucked away in their nice little home church. And this older gentleman comes in with ragtag clothes, long kind of greasy hair with a with an ugly looking little beard he said he said <laughs> it was like a bunch of prairie dogs he said everybody in, in the pews all looked around at the same time and started eyeballing him what's he doing here and he he said I started praying he said I prayed God please don't let that ugly man sit next to me <clears throat> Because I don't know what he's doing here. You know, he's not supposed to be here. But he said, well, wouldn't you know it, the guy walked across some people and, and came and stood right by him and smiled and stuck out his hand and shake his hand. He said he kind of shook the guy's hand, said he could smell him from, you know, next door there. Well, the service went on. He said that they began with singing a few songs and Usually the congregation didn't join in. It was just the professional choir people that would sing. But he said this guy thought he wanted to sing with them. And he was singing loud, and he couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, and he was just making a fool out of himself. He, he said er, everybody in there just turning around, staring at this guy. He's like, man, why do I have to be standing by this fella? So anyway, they sat down, and the, the preacher finally got to the scriptures, and the guy pulled out a little pocket Bible, a little greasy old pocket Bible, and pulled it up and starts going to the Scriptures. Nobody in their church did that. They had to, you know, they didn't open up to, to the Scriptures. Well, this guy did. He started trying to, why is this fella here? It's a small town. We know everybody around. Where did he come from? I mean, just to show up on a Christmas morning like that. And so... As they began to pass the offering plate later in the service, he started to say, I know what it is. He's going to take the plate and run out of here. That's why he sat on the back, back here with me. He said, I know what's going on. So he kind of eyeballed the usher. And one of the ushers went over there to stand, you know, at the back of the church in case he ran that way. And Heath already had the plan about how he was going to stick his foot out and trip him. And so that they could tackle him on the way out if he tried to take that offering plate. Well, reluctantly, they finally got to his row and they started passing it down. He said every eyeball in the church was on that man. What's he going to do? You know what he did? We'll tell you at the end of the service to give you something to, to look forward to. Right now, turn to Acts chapter 5. And you better act right. How many wants to learn how to act right? (laughs) 
Okay. All right. We're going to start in verse 40, but before we get there, let me give you a little background information on what's happening here. Peter and the apostles have been out preaching this Jesus with signs and miracles following. They're preaching, and people are getting saved. People are getting healed everywhere they go, and this has just got the religious people up in arms. <laughs> All the people are going to them. They're not coming to our churches. You know, they're not looking at us. Look, I'm the one wearing the robe. They don't even have any robes. You know, they're upset because people are, are turning to God because of these disciples. So they have them arrested. They throw them in jail. Say, tomorrow we're going to have, you know, have court and we're going to put them away for good. Well, during the night, an angel shows up, opens up the jail and tells them all to go out. You're free to go. They walk out. And, he's and the angel tells them, go on back to the temple and preach again. So that next morning, they're supposed to be in jail. They're preaching in the temple again. Unbeknownst to the the religious leaders, they have their court, and they, they get, okay, bring the prisoners in, and then when they go to bring the prisoners in, the prisoners are gone. They said, well, the doors are locked and everything. We had guards, but we don't know how this happened. Somebody comes rushing in and says, they're in the temple, preaching Jesus. Well, go get them. So they went, this time with kid gloves, they arrested them because, they, because of fear of all the people. But they arrested them, and they brought them before the court, I thought we told you to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Once again, Peter tells them, look, am I going to obey you or am I going to obey God? And he begins to lay it on them hard again about how you crucified the Lord of glory. Well, it gets them all in an uproar, and they're getting madder and madder, and they're about gnashing their teeth and just, well, I can't wait to get rid of these guys. But one of them, a guy named Gamiel, he's a Pharisee. I guess just in a moment of clarity, he says, hold on, fellas, before we go overboard, can we, can we get them out of the room for a minute? Let's talk this over. So they get the disciples out of the room, and they have a little powwow. And he says, do y'all remember so-and-so? You know, he led a sect, and people followed him. But once he died, his believers scattered, and we hadn't heard from them since. And then there was so-and-so, and, -so, and he, the same thing pretty much happened. This, the same thing will happen with these guys, unless this Jesus they're following there's something to him, and we find ourselves fighting against God. I don't know why none of them had thought of that before, that they might just be fighting against God when they're obviously doing miracles. But it says in verse 40, the others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles, and they had them flogged. Well, I guess they didn't accept it all the way. They still wanted to get their punches in. They had the disciples flogged, and then they ordered them, once again, never speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. In verse 41, it says, the apostles left the high council rejoicing. Say rejoicing. That God had counted them worthy. Say worthy. To suffer. Say suffer. Ooh, suffer. Ooh. That's a bad word in the church. Ooh, ooh, Mufasa. <laughs> the apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Wait a minute now. Let's just think about that. Did they mix the words up? Did they, did they explain this wrong? They were rejoicing because they were suffering? 
They were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That doesn't sound like something I hear too often in modern day Christianity. At least around these parts. And it goes on, and every day in the temple, or from house to house, wherever they were at, they continued to do what? Preach the message, Jesus is the Messiah. Couldn't get it off their lips. They were going to do it anyway. Why not? When you're already a dead man, you've already died to this life, nobody can't harm you now. You're dead to the things of this world. You might as well go on and rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Because I've died to all this. That was their mentality, and you couldn't stop them. And look what has happened over 2,000 years later. They have turned the world upside down. And if we had a few more like these, what could we do? It wasn't so long ago. I think it was back in like 1963 or 4, I didn't get the exact date, that John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You don't hear talk like that much anymore. In the same country that we lived in back then. This is the same country. That's where he said it, here in America. It doesn't look like the same country. They'd probably boo him if he said that these days. <laughs> and... You even hear Christians asking questions like, well, what can God do for me? Not what they can, can they do for God, but what can God do for me? What does that church down there have to offer me? Do they have a softball league? Huh? How thick is the padding on their purple chairs? What have you done for me lately? Wasn't that a song or something? Yeah. I think got it stuck in your head now. A lot of Christians, or so-called Christians, are asking themselves questions like, where can I go that I can just clock in and hide out in the rafters somewhere and do as little and give as little as I possibly can but still feel good about myself when I leave? But I've done God a favor by showing up. Not, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. But what's the littlest I can get away with? There's one term that you hear all the time these days, and it brings it to mind. Entitlement mentality. hope I don't step on any toes tonight. Entitlement mentality is when people begin to confuse privileges with rights. We have a lot, a lot, of, like I prayed before, we have a lot of privileges here in America. We can pray, we can worship as we ought and as we want to, when and how we want to for the most part without the government interference or whatever. We have a lot of privileges. But not every privilege is a right. The privileges and the freedoms that we have were 
bought and paid for in the blood of American soldiers around the world and paid for by brave men and women that pioneered this land and called us one nation under God and knew where those rights and privileges came from. But today we have a, a generation growing up thinking that the world owes them, that it should even pay their bills. And these are the same people that typically won't take responsibility for anything including their own actions. And they don't show any respect for the people who do bear the shoulder of responsibility, probably paying their bills. They have no respect for our men in uniform, whether they be soldiers or policemen. They have no respect for governing authorities. They burn the American flag. They just want us to be a nation of the world. America and the, the founding documents. Oh, it's just living, breathing, moving. It, it just moves with us. And as we're the melting pot. You know, a melting pot used to mean where you come in here and you, you all knew what you was going to get when you served the meal. Not that everybody was going to get to come in and make us Europe or make us Africa or make us... Australia, or whatever they want to make us. America was an ideal. America was what America is, and you come here and you become part of the greatest country that ever lived. Am I preaching real good even though I ain't got to the Bible yet? Okay, and so it began in our schools when we began to indoctrinate our children with participation trophies. And moving them up, whether they could read or write and all, just because we didn't want to hurt little Johnny's feelings. So we graded on a curve. We took away their pledge of allegiance. We took away prayer in school. We gave them nothing firm to stand on. And now we've grown up with a culture that will religiously hold on to their right to free speech <laughs> while denying it to anyone else who disagrees with them or their college professor. Man, this turned ugly real quick, didn't it? I just preach them as I get them. And now the politicians have become the, their saviors. Why? Because the politicians have learned that if they offer enough freebies, they can continually be voted into office. And the people have learned that if they vote the right people in office, they can take from them the American treasury. After all, we won't free everything, don't we? It's all, just give us free everything. I want to go to college. Oh, that's free. Healthcare, free. It's all a right. We, we somehow... Somebody out there owes it to me. Send me a check. And as I'm saying this, somewhere, some dude's getting up off the couch, smoking a, a doobie, saying, man, it's a bummer having to walk all the way out to the mailbox to get this check, man.
But I think I'm preaching to adults in here tonight, right? People that understand there are no freebies. Everything that the government says is free, the government don't have any money. The government has our money. There are no freebies. The money is coming from somewhere. And the problem with the idea of everything being free is eventually you run out of other people's money. Just like in Venezuela. A beautiful country. Happy people. Happy-go-lucky, just laid-back country. Hugo Chavez comes in and begins to preach socialism. The government, he buys his way into office, promising freebies, and gets everybody in the nation hooked on free checks, and free this and free that. And then the money ran out. Have you seen what's going on in Venezuela? It's called civil war. Now the people are expecting their check, or they're going to war over their check, and the money is not there. So what do you do? You always run out of other people's money. We live in a society where most people are just in it for themselves these days. What, what about my rights? What about me? Me, mine, and I. Our high school graduates, I talk to them. They come out of high school thinking that they deserve to be driving a $35,000 vehicle and living in a $300,000 crib. He's got it. They got it. It's the rich people holding me down, so they get mad at the people that have it, but they don't do it. They hadn't done any of the things that it took those people to get to where they got. Those people probably worked for a living for 40 or 50 years to get that house or wherever they're at. But our high school students think that they, they deserve it too because after all, we all live in America. This is America. This is the, everybody gets everything free here in America. Let's take it from the rich. We live in a society where everybody feels like nobody has a right to say anything offensive to them. I'll sue you if you offend me. <laughs> they hurt their little feelings. God bless them. I know that's nobody in here tonight because you'd probably have already left by now. The Declaration of Independence says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It doesn't say the guarantee of happiness. It just says you have a chance. If you will work hard, if you will make something of yourself, if you will go for your dreams, you can have them. Not that they will be given to you. And it also says that these rights are inalienable rights given to us by God. And this me generation are the first ones to kick God to the curb. I say all that, you thinking, I'm, is this guy a politician or a preacher? Where are we getting there? I say all that to say, has the entitlement mentality crept into the church? 
That's where I'm going with this. We'll stay, we'll stay off of the, the world for a moment. Let's get on the church. Turn to Romans chapter 12. If there's somebody out there that's not offended yet, say amen. amen. Better than I thought. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Apostle Paul writing to the Romans. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't do it. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. You see, when you gave your heart to Jesus, a, a, a transformation took place in your heart, and there needs to be a transformation being, beginning to take place in your mind. It says, then you'll know, you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good, say good, pleasing, and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think of yourselves better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. See, that's how we should measure ourselves. Faith worketh by love, right? So we should measure ourselves to how well we're loving. And love isn't about me. It isn't about my accomplishments. It isn't about my stuff. It's about believing God, knowing his will, and loving other people. And when it says good, pleasing, and perfect, a lot of people think that notate three levels of God's will. A lot of people, in, I think in the King James it says acceptable and then something perfect. And they think, well, if I, you know, I don't want to, Go whole hog for Jesus. I'll just try to shoot for the acceptable. You know, I'll just, I'll just try to get in. You know, I don't have to be perfect or, or pleasing. I'm just going for the acceptable. I'll just do enough. And that's the mentality that has crept into the church. But I don't think that's three levels of God's will. I think that's all of God's will. It's good, pleasing, and perfect all at the same time. Amen? But sticking to this good, better, best uh, proposition I wanted to look at it at a different angle tonight look at some things in the lens of good bad and ugly <laughs> so we're going to look at good bad the good the bad and the ugly anybody see that movie I hadn't seen it in years I don't remember it. but I remember it was a movie so let's talk about Jesus Y'all was, finally, somebody I know about. Let's talk about Jesus and some of the things that he did while he was on the earth. Because if anybody, when they came to the earth, had a right to feel entitled, <laughs> huh? If anybody could have had an entitlement mentality, it would have been the creator, Jesus. It's in him we live, move, and have our being. He created us. All things were created by him, for him, and through him all things exist. We are here for his pleasure. That's why we were created. So he, he could say, I'm entitled to some things. Since all the cattle on the thousand hills is mine, everything, I own everything. I could be entitled to. But that's not the mentality he came with, is it? Born in a manger kind of thing. Jesus come and he suffered. I think that ought to put our lives in perspective. Think about that. 
Let's talk about some things he did. Jesus valued his ministry so much that he began it with a 40-day fast. You remember he got baptized and immediately the Spirit took him into the wilderness and he, he, he didn't eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights. And he would, says he was tempted out there. But that's, I mean, you got to be serious to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Anybody ever done that? Four hours, <laughs> you know? He, why did he do that, do you suppose? Because he valued his ministry. He valued his reason, uh, purpose down here so much that he didn't want to be in the flesh. He wanted to make sure he was in the spirit and he was hearing from God and he was doing things God's way. Say, that's good. Remember, we're the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Jesus is always going to be the good, just to give you a clue. That, say, that's good. He, understand that, he understood that it was his flesh. It's the flesh that gives you this entitlement mentality. So he wanted to put the flesh under right off the bat. He didn't want that propping back up on him. Us, we can fast one meal, and we don a face like the walking dead. Oh, I'm just having cramps. Oh, did you know I'm fasting, man? Pray for me, brother. I don't know if I can make it. It's terrible, you know, and... And we just want everybody to see how much we're suffering. You know, for that one, we, we left off one burrito. We ate the taco, but we, you know, we fasted the burrito and did God such a favor. <laughs> Say, that's bad. That's not the way you fast, right? Jesus said, when you fast, you know, keep your hair done upright. I'm going to be going, you know, <laughs> look at me. You got your reward. But today, many, many people, they scoff at the idea, the mere mention that they would put their flesh under at all, say, that's ugly. Have you seen the, uh, just flesh creatures that never deny themselves at all? Have, <laughs> that's ugly. I'm not, I'm not pit, mentally picturing anybody. I'm just... <laughs> okay, so another thing. When Jesus was out there in the wilderness, the devil tempted him, right? He offered Jesus all the kingdoms of this world. Everything that this world had to offer, he said, Jesus, I'll put you in charge of it. But like Moses, Jesus chose to suffer for his God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin, to party with the devil. Say, that's good. That's good. And there was n so he went right off the bat. Nothing in this world could draw him from his purpose in life. Say, that's good. That's, that's real good. Most of us, we're still arguing with God about whether we should tithe. Say, that's bad. I mean, come on. 10%, God give you everything, but you're going to argue with him about your 10%. We ain't got past that yet, you know. That's bad. But there's many who are lured in and sell their soul for that little, that little red bowl of soup that the world offers. That's ugly. That's ugly. Say, that's ugly. Are you getting the, y'all going to help me with this? Y'all getting it? Good, the bad, the ugly, starting to catch on? All right. So there was one time that I remember that Jesus, 
wanted to mourn the death of his best friend, John the Baptist. They had beheaded his friend. He wanted to get away alone. And the crowds followed him everywhere he went. I love to read the book of Mark. If you really want to get a sense of what it was like with Jesus on the earth, the book of Mark just really captures the intensity of those kind of crowds that followed him that he could never get away. And he was trying to get away. He wanted so desperately just to have a moment to suffer by himself, you know, his grief, loss of his friend. But he saw the multitudes were following him. He said, they're like, a, like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on him. He turned and he began to minister to them. Why? Because Jesus loved others more than he loved his own self. Say, that's good. That's good. See, that's the way we should be. We're going for the good, right? He loved others more than he loved his own self. Now, some churches complain if their church is getting too crowded. <laughs> that's bad. I mean, that's the way they look at it. You know, I want our church to stay small because I have my whole row here and I don't want anybody sitting too close. <laughs> that's about how much they care about growing the kingdom of God. That's bad. Say, that's bad. And then, of course, we have some people out there beheading the John the Baptist of our generation, like ISIS. Say, that's ugly. That's ugly. You see the, the range of things going on? We're shooting for the what? The good. One point, it says that Jesus touched a leper. I know I talk about that a lot, but it just really touched me when he touched him. It, it did. Because they were highly contagious. Nobody touched a leper. They weren't even allowed to be around you in the first place. For Jesus to get within 20 feet of this guy was probably against about eight of the laws that they had at the time. But Jesus laid his hands on a leper. Why did Jesus lay his hand on Because he had compassion for the hurting. Say, that's good. That's good. You know, recently there was an Ebola outbreak, what, two years ago or something? And several Christians were ministering to the Ebola patients when nobody else would. And they got the Ebola. But I think Jesus would say, that's good. That's good. That's, that's my boy. That's my girl right there. Ministering when nobody else would. Putting others before. Compassion welling up in them. Today, we have people in the church say, I don't do hospitals. Say, that's bad. That's bad. I don't do nursing homes. I don't like the smell in there. I don't like this. Who does? Who just loves to go to the hospital and, you know, and visit people? I mean, I'm going on vacation to the hospital for the next two weeks, you know. That's when I'm going to take my vacation. No. I know you don't like funerals. I know you don't like to go to the nursing home. I know you don't like to go to the hospital, but get over it. That's bad. You know how ridiculous that must sound to Jesus? I don't do hospitals. I've heard that. That's bad. Don't say it no more. First Timothy 5.8 says, but those who won't care for their own relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Say, that's ugly. Okay, it's one thing if you won't go to the hospital and visit somebody in the church, but if you won't go and visit your own family, <laughs> that's ugly. The Bible tells us that Jesus was known to pray all night. 
He would get away when he could, and he was always in communion with the Father. He would minister so long that his disciples would just be exhausted, and they'd be looking at each other saying, is something wrong with him? We, we've worked right through breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He's still healing, folks, and the line's still a mile long, and he ain't showing no sign of quitting. It shows that Jesus was willing to give all for his ministry. Say, that's good. There's one story in the Bible in Acts where Paul was preaching. And he was so excited, man. I don't, you know, he was having one of them good services, I guess, because he preached till midnight. I don't know what, it don't tell what time he started, but the impression was he'd been preaching all day. He preaches till midnight. This dude was, I think his name was Eutychus or something like that. He was sitting up in, on, in the window listening, and it got so late, and Paul's still preaching. He dozed off and fell out the third story window, broke his neck, and died. That's a good way to end the service, ain't it? Some of y'all would say, I wish I could break my neck right now and get out of here. No. <laughs> That's not a way to end the service. No, in fact, it didn't end the service. Pa Paul trekked down three flight of steps, went out there, raised the man from the dead, brought him back in, and preached till morning time. And at 12.05, all around this country, people tapping their watch, I'm pastor, the buffet, the buffet. And they didn't get there until 11.15. Miss praise and worship. I got to get down to casinos. <laughs> but not Jesus, not Paul. He had a hunger for the things of God. Say, that's good. Ready to go at 12.05? That's bad. Man, when I first started this church, man, we, our services would go two or three hours, wouldn't they? And on a Sunday morning, and we had a Sunday evening service that would go for another two or three hours. That was good. <clears throat> Here's something that's really ugly, though. There's a lot of people who claim to love Jesus. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus but I can't stand his bride. I don't like the church. I don't do church. Church is a man-made thing. No, wait, wait. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus explained to us how he gave up his life for the church. That's ugly. That's ugly to talk bad about Jesus' bride. Church is important to Jesus. Well, about the greatest feat anybody ever accomplished, bar none. The greatest victory that I could ever speak of was when Jesus himself defeated death, hell, and the grave and offered eternal salvation to us. He made a show of his enemies, triumphing over them. It was wonderful. I know if that would have been me, I'd have got in my jet and went right back to heaven and partied it up. But as I've told y'all several times, another story I like to tell is not Jesus. 
He said it is finished on the cross. He meant that, I guess he just meant that portion of it. He meant the making it possible portion because as soon as he rose from the grave on that Sunday morning, he's seven miles out on the road to Emmaus chasing down two wayward disciples. He's showing us that the job is not finished. It's possible, but now we have to tell them so that nobody goes without knowing the truth. Amen? To Jesus, people's eternal salvation is top priority. Say, that's good. See, that's the focus. That's why you're still down here once you get saved and you didn't just get zapped up immediately because you're needed down here to be a light. You have the words of eternal life. You've got to tell somebody that's good when you can understand that your priority is getting people saved. Now, I'm telling on myself here, but when I do something good, like I go to an outreach and, and I see people get saved and, and I'm all high on myself and thinking that you know, I've done something good, that's when I'm most likely to sin. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I can preach a good message or something. And I can feel so holy and spiritual, and I go home and say, well, I deserve to sit in a recliner. And then I cut the TV on and watch something I ain't supposed to watch or something. It's like the flesh thinks it, it's trying to tell me that you did something good and you think you're all that. Well, let me show you how quick I can turn the switch off and you can go right back to that old fella. That ain't the way it ought to be. Say, that's bad. That's bad. That's not the way it ought to be. We should stay in the spirit all the time. And don't give yourself, a, don't pat yourself on the back. All the glory goes to him. Even if you do feel like you're doing pretty good sometimes, you should feel good about what you do and all that. I'm not saying that, but don't use it as an excuse to let the flesh take over. Now, some people get saved, and they never, ever, ever think about anybody else's salvation. They're just fine with people, you know, Heading straight to hell when they die, that doesn't bother me. I got my free ticket. Say, that's ugly. Isn't that ugly? That is ugly as you can get. That's not us. Jesus was consumed with saving people from hell. That's why he came. And he felt the weight of his own commitment in the garden that night. And he sweat great drops of blood. He felt agony of thinking about what was coming but yet he confirmed to God his willingness to give all for us and then when they had that little mock trial he didn't stand up and evoke his rights what about me he didn't he gave up his entitlements and he he paid the debt we couldn't pay he took the blows he wore the crown. He endured the stripes, the insults, and he humbly carried my cross to what was supposed to be my final demise. And when the wrath of God was poured out on him, you know what he said? Father, forgive them. He said, take care of mama. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Even in the the mist and amongst what he was going through. It was always about somebody else. In fact, that's how he endured it. If you're going through something right now, how about you get your focus off of yourself for a moment and go help somebody else? 
It says he endured the cross, despising the shame, but he did it for the joy that was set before him, the people that would come to know him and to be with him for eternity because of what he was doing. He always kept his focus. He was always about somebody else. Does that sound like any Christians that you know? Do you know anybody like that? that they have such a sense of balance about why What's the meaning of life? Do you have that at all? I think you do. I am encouraged that you do. I have already determined and seen with my own eyes that people who just want to hide out and do as least as possible don't come to the Passion Church because you can't sit on a purple Passion Chair and not be passionate because we won't let you. We're always preaching messages like this to stir you out of your comfort zone. And people that just want to clock in, they don't come here. We could probably fill the seats a lot quicker if we were to soften all the messages and tell you God just wants you rich, God just wants you blessed, He wants to make this life about you. But I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not. I'm going to tell you the way to true happiness. I'm going to tell you the way to true blessedness. And it ain't through self. Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 6, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near, but I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. That's be, that should be what we're shooting for right there. To hear, well done, thy good and faith. You don't want to get there and say, Jesus say, well, you're done. No. You want to know when you get there. You don't want to have any regrets when you stand before the Lord of glory. Turn to Hebrews eleven thirteen. We're about to close. We'll get you out of here by midnight. <laughs> Hebrews eleven thirteen. Now we know Hebrews eleven is called the the heroes of the faith chapter, where it it notates all the people from the past that were faithful to God and, and how they overcame and, and they changed the world. And in verse thirteen, it says. <laughs> After mentioning a bunch of them, it says, All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. In other words, this ain't it. This ain't heaven yet. All the promises of God are yes and amen, but they're not all on this side of eternity. Okay? They understood that. They, they saw Something that I want you to see tonight. They knew it was coming. They saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth. They weren't so attached to the things of this world. They were sojourners. In other words, they took up their tent. That's why God told Abraham to take a tent. He didn't tell him to build a big uh, cinder block house. Take a tent, Abraham, and go where I tell you and do what I tell you to do. That's how you live on this earth. 
You're not attached to the things of this world. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country that they can call their own. If they had longed from the country they come from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. And that is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the city God is preparing for those who love him those who are not entangled in the affairs of this life. And if you go on down to verse 33, it says, By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire. They escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. How? By faith. By trusting in God, they became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. Hallelujah for the victory that's in the Lord Jesus. But, well, that's an odd turn. Say, but. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Sometimes you wonder, why is all this bad stuff happening to me? Why is everybody piling everything on me? Why am I the only one in the family who's doing right? Why, why, why? Well, get over it. Because your day of rest is coming. You will be rewarded for the things you have done. Some were jeered at. And their backs cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. And others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats. Destitute and oppressed and mistreated. God says they were too good for this world. wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and in holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. In other words, faith ain't about using God's Word to get what you want with, for your flesh. Faith is about enduring whatever circumstances God picks out for you, the plan God has for your life. Whether it be good and getting the victory and winning the battle, or whether it be sawn in half. Faith is trusting God no matter what. Anybody can trust God when things are going good. These people were too good for this world. God recognized it. For God had something better in mind for us. So that they would not reach perfection without us. God has something better. So don't hold on to this life. You'll lose it. It won't mean nothing if you gain the whole thing. But if you'll let go. And you'll trust God in the middle of your circumstances. You'll walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. You'll follow him day by day. Doing the best that you can. When you get beat down, you get back up. You don't quit. 
You don't grow weary in well-doing. You let God have His way in you for these short years that we live here. And, it, and our light affliction works for us a far greater weight of glory in the world to come. What's the worst they can do to you here? Kill you? This is a promotion for you. You should have already died to yourself anyway so that everything is gravy, that you can rejoice in all things. Even as you suffer, you can give God glory. You can rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Oh, what a different mindset that is than most people in this world have. Only a chosen few are seeing this. All of Jesus' disciples, they would go on to become martyrs for their faith. Peter, being the most notable, it's reported that he was crucified upside down, figuring that he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. He asked him to hold him up, to crucify him upside down. See, that's a different mindset. That's somebody thankful. That's somebody hopeful for the world to come, for the life to come. That's somebody saving up their treasures in heaven, not here on the earth. That's somebody thinking eternal, not carnal. Colossians 1.24 Apostle Paul says to the church at Colossae, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. You know what that's telling me? The suffering is not over. The suffering will never be over until it's over. We must fill up in our body that which is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Not that, that Jesus didn't, his suffering wasn't perfect, but that part that he, he, when he took off on the road to Emmaus, he showed us it isn't over. I want to go party, but not yet. I got something to do. And God has something for you to do. And that's to spread this truth. Because God's not willing that any should perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But all that, should, that they should turn and repent from their sins and come to know Him like you did. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past. But now it is revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret that Christ lives in you. And that gives you assurance of sharing His glory. If you will share in the sufferings, you have assurance of sharing in the glory. So don't think it's strange, my brethren, when you suffer. Don't despair. Of course, don't add to your own suffering by sin and and the wages of your sin cause you to suffer. And we're not talking about that kind of suffering. We're talking about standing up for Jesus and doing what it takes to endure to the end. 
and to win as many souls as we can in the process. All right, I'll finish the story. Christmas morning. They've already got the plan together. This guy's going to try to take the offering plate, and he's going to bolt. We know it. He's sitting there, and he's got his eye on him, so does everybody else in the church. Usher's got the back door. Usher takes the front door, whichever way he goes, and figure they can get him. And here comes the offering plate, and everybody in the church turns around him, watching him. Well, that guy grabs the offering plate. My brother said he reached in his old pocket. He was waiting on him to pull out a knife, but he didn't. He had a wadded-up $1 bill. That's all he had in his pocket. Unfolded it carefully, put it in the plate, smiled, and passed it to Heath. Said when the service was over, the guy shook Heath's hand, smiled, and walked out, and Heath was like, What was that? Then he began to feel bad that he had prejudged the guy, and so he said, Well, I want to find out his story. Where could he possibly come from in this little town? So he, he went out the back door or the, the front door, and the guy was gone. Never saw him again. Heath calls it his dirty angel story. Maybe sometimes we cross angels unawares. Or maybe we just we cross people. But whether they're angels or they're people, they deserve the love, all the love that we can give them. You know, they criticized Jesus for hanging out with undesirables. He was always caring about the least of these, setting the example, loving the unloved. Like I said, touching, just that touch. You, can you imagine what it meant to that leper? And the Bible says that many that are first here will be last there, and vice versa. And I want to ask you a question tonight. If you always have to be first here on earth, what does that say about your position in heaven? listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.